Hello, friends. I'm so glad you found me here at the Steward Project Podcast, but we have to start each episode with a little bit of a disclaimer. Because this podcast is focused on the intersections of service, social justice, spirituality, and self-care, please know that we will talk about some challenging topics, some things that might be uncomfortable, or some things that might trigger us. So I just want you to come into this space fully aware I also want to be very clear that I occasionally drop an F-bomb or two. So if you have young children nearby, maybe use your earplugs or make sure that they know that the person you're listening to is just really, really passionate. Here we go. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Steward Project podcast. This is episode two. May is Foster Care Awareness Month and Mental Health Awareness Month, so I'm definitely going to be talking about these two topics, um, and obviously not just in May, (laughs) but I want to start by dedicating this episode to a young woman named Deabony Groves, and the reason I'm dedicating this episode to Deabony Groves is that she was a social work major at Belmont University um, who was going to graduate this June with her BSW. But she was killed in the Waffle House shooting in Nashville, Tennessee on April 22nd, 2018. She was killed along with Taureen Sanderlin, Joe Perez, and Aquila Da Silva. And Sharita Henderson and Shanita Wagner were also wounded in that incident. And the reason I'm dedicating this episode to her is maybe obviously because she's a social worker, but also because the reason I'm doing this podcast is to talk about these intersections of social work and social justice. And knowing that she was murdered by someone who intentionally wanted to kill people of color um, is just breaks my heart. And to know that uh, someone who had chosen a career to help others and to be a light in this world was taken out and muffled and dimmed really breaks my heart. And um, over the weekend, I watched her mom walk across the stage and accept her diploma online. And it was heartbreaking um, just to know that another helper, healer, and change maker um, is not in this world anymore. And that impacts all of us. So I'm dedicating this episode to Ebony Groves. And I hope you'll take a moment just to learn about her, to think about her, and to hold those of us who do this work a little bit closer. Here we go. All right. So we are going to talk about foster care. May is Foster Care Awareness Month. Um, Foster Care Awareness Month for me is every month of the year. (laughs) Um, And I am going to share some data and statistics with you guys So those of you who are really brand new to this monster of a moving system we call foster care will understand kind of the shape of it. Um, I'm going to share my own personal journey into foster care from being a CASA to becoming a foster parent. And then I'm hoping that I might be able to bribe one of my own foster kids to come on and chat with me so that you can get a firsthand experience um, from a kid's perspective of what it's like to come into the system and navigate the system um, and then get out of the system (laughs) Um, because all of my foster youth have now, all of my foster kids have now emancipated from the system. Hallelujah. So um, in order to get a sense of the shape and the size of this beast we call the foster care system, I want to give you some data. 
Now, my I'm a data nerd. I love data. I love numbers. Um, and I always, always want to remember that the data, the numbers that we get, there are always human beings behind them. So I'm going to share some data about these kids, but I want you to remember that these are kids, each and every one, every single individual one. Um, and specifically when we talk about data and youth statistics and youth data, youth outcomes in any kind of system that is focused on serving youth, we also have to re remember that the data is also pointing out the failures of the adults in that system, right? I mean, quite frankly, when you hear the outcomes for foster youth, the abysmal outcomes for foster youth, this is not about foster youth being failing kids, right? This is not about them not being able to pick themselves up by their bootstraps or any of that nonsense. This is truly a failure of the adults in the system. So when we get to that, those stats, you'll know what I mean, and I will make sure that I <laughs> express again my disgust for some of the adult failures that have happened in the system. So let's start at the very basics. Um, I am using AFCARS data, and AFCARS is an acronym, A-F-C-A-R-S. Um, you know, in the social work world and in the education world, we have really amazing acronyms. <laughs> we have an acronyms for everything because talking like normal humans just doesn't interest us. So I will try to do my best to make sure I spell out acronyms for you. Um, so AFCARS data is the Adoption Foster Care Analysis Reporting System. The Adoption and Foster Care Analysis Reporting System, AFCARS. And this data is from 2016. And if you're familiar with data processes and data collection, you understand that the data is never in real time. We usually get it a year or two years late. Um, when it comes to public education, we always get our data like two school years behind. We're getting a little bit better about being just one school year behind, but the data is never current present time, right? You need time to collect the data, aggregate the data, make sure it's accurate and disaggregate it. So um, 2016 AFCARS data tells us that there are 437,000 kids in foster care at this very moment. So half, almost half a million kids in foster care. 11, or sorry, 110,000 of those kids are waiting to be adopted. Um, so the next time someone tells you that there are no kids available for adoption in the United States, make sure you tell them that there are 110,000 kids throughout the United States waiting for adoption. And then we find that about 20,000 young people emancipate from the foster care system every year. So what that means is, you know, kids come into care at different ages. The, mo the most common age for kids to come in or the, the median age is five years old at age of entry into the system. Um, and kids come into foster care through no fault of their own. These kids are not delinquents. There is nothing wrong with them. They are just have just been living with parents or caregivers who were not able to take care of them. So what we find is that um, sixty-one percent of kids come into care because of neglect, meaning the adults in their lives are not taking care of their basic needs. It may be that they're not feeding them regularly or enough. It may be that they um, are not finding adequate housing for them. It may mean that they are not getting them to school regularly, and that's just an egregious thing—not like a few absences here and there, but like the kid hasn't been in school for two years, kind of thing. Um, it may be medical neglect, right? So the kid may need um, specific medical care that the parents are not providing. Um, so any of those reasons, and what we find is 61% come in for neglect, 34% of kids come in for parental drug use, 14% of kids come into care for what's called caretaker inability to cope, 
And of course, if you know me, you know my background is in understanding trauma. And I would suggest that caretaker inability to cope is very clearly, you know, parental trauma that is unable to be regulated um, so that they can they cannot take care of children. Um, and then only we find only 12% of kids come in for physical abuse, 8% for parental incarceration, and 4% for sexual abuse. So again, the most common reason that a kid would come into foster care is neglect. Their needs are not being met. And I also want to point out that um, neglect, poverty is not is not a qualifier for neglect. So just simply being poor as a parent, if you are poor and you know you have little ha little food to feed your child or not a, not the best clothes to give them or you know you have to move from place to place or you find shelter with other people, your kid hopefully depending on what state you live in would not be taken into foster care. Um, I know specifically where I am in California, poverty is not a reason we bring kids into care. So if there's a parent living in an RV with a with a kid, Unless that kid is in danger of, you know, their safety is in danger, that parent is not going to be punished. That child is not going to be removed. What we are going to do is try to find as many resources as we can to get that family out of the RV and into an apartment, right, that's safer. At first, we might have to find them a safe park place just to have their RV in a safe, well-lit place that has access to other human beings. Um, and then we'll slowly begin to pull them into housing. But we wouldn't remove a child simply because of poverty. Now, if a kid's living in a home and they're not being fed regularly on purpose, right, or they're not being given appropriate clothing for the weather on purpose, or, you know, any of those needs are not being met in a way that's malicious, um, or just the parent's inability to take care of them, then those kids would come into care. So I mentioned the average age of entry is five years old, but we find the average age of, for kids in the foster care system is eight years old. And I remember when I was doing my um, my internship, getting my master's of social work, and um, I was for a group home agency, and they did um, they had a foster adoption program, and I remember sitting in on their staff meetings when they would talk about a specific kid, you know, they bring up a case of of a kid, and then say, you know, this is a kid who's looking, we're looking for this kind of home with, you know, either no no other kids, or we want other kids, or no animals, or we want other animals. Um, and it was just a, you know, a group of us together talking about a specific kid, checking in to see what resources might be available. Did we have any current foster parents that might fit the need for this child, any of that stuff? And I remember one meeting, um, this case came before us and this kid was like seven years old and he was an adorable little redheaded kid, you know, total ginger, just on fire in every way. Um, to know him was to love him and to be frustrated by him. <laughs> he was, he was just a bundle. Um, so we were talking about how, you know, we really need to make sure that whoever takes him knows what they're getting and can handle this child and that he would be an only child because that's what he would need. He needed full attention and undivided love. Um, but I remember the conversation moving to, you know, we really need to get this kid placed because he's going to be eight years old soon. And I, I asked, I said, well, what is, what does that mean? Like, yeah, he's going to be eight, but so, so what? Like, what do you mean we have to place him before he's eight? And the room kind of got silent and it was kind of like, a, oh, you cute new social worker, you. <laughs> but everybody kind of looked at me. And the one, um, the one person who was kind of facilitating the meeting said, well, you know, we do find that statistically once kids turn eight years old, they become unadoptable. And I just remember hearing that word and like that sinking into my body of like, Oh, eight years old is unadoptable. 
Really? And they said, you know, the challenge is a lot of people when they think about taking in a kid, they think about, or adopting a kid, they think about babies. Everybody wants the babies, the cute babies. And once kids turn about eight, they stop being cute little babies and they start to be, you know, a little bit more frustrating teenagers. <laughs> um, so that was just an interesting awareness for me. And again, that was one of my things of like, oh no, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can tell me an eight-year-old is unadoptable. Um, but that is kind of the trend we, we see across the country is that, you know, once kids get to eight years old, they're not as cute anymore and taking them in is hard. Now I will tell you, and you may know from what I've already shared, I took in teenagers. I did not want babies. No, 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 no. Like I, I adore babies. I absolutely adore infants. And anyone who knows me knows that like, give me a baby any day. I'm a burp ninja. I'm a sleep ninja. You know, I can burp your kid or put your kid to sleep within two minutes. I'm good like that. But when it came to taking kids in for care, from care, from the foster care system, I really wanted kids that could tell me what was going on with them. Kids who could express to me what was going on. If they were angry, upset, sad, frustrated, happy, joyful, whatever it was. Um, the thought of having a young child with trauma who couldn't explain to me what was going on seemed much more frightening to me than having teenagers. Even if they were going to you know, curse at me or yell at me, at least I knew how they felt. Um, and it's funny because obviously I find, you know, people look at me crazy when I say, oh, I love teenagers. I'll take a teenager any day. Um, so just noticing that, right, that kids recognize like what their value is based on their age in the system. And they kind of know that the longer they're in the system, the less likely they are to find permanency with a family. Now, most of these kids, um, the average stay in foster care is about 20, 18 to 20 months. So, you know, a little bit more than a year, a little less than two years. And the hope is that the kids return back to their home that's been rehabilitated. You know, parents have figured out how to parent <laughs> um, safely and, and the kids are given back to them. But that doesn't always happen. Um, so there are different outcomes for kids. But before we get to the outcomes for kids, I also want to um, mention one of the other pieces of data, which is the, the, um, the ethnic breakdown of foster youth. So we do find that a majority of foster youth are white. So 47% of foster youth are white. Um, and 21% of foster youth are black and 20% Hispanic. Um, now, it seems like those are low numbers for black and Hispanic, right? 21% black, 20% Hispanic. But when you look at the number of kids in that racial ethnic group overall, what we find is for white kids, 52% of all kids in the nation are white and 47% of foster kids are white. So that's a proportionate number. It's a little high. We want fewer in the in care, obviously, but it's proportionate with their number in society. Whereas when we look at black and Hispanic kids, um, I believe black kids are only about 24% in the whole country and then 21% in foster care. So that's a really high number and it's a little disproportionate, right? That's what we mean by disproportionality. Um, that their number of that of a certain group in totality um, and their number in a concentrated group is a little too close or it's off completely. Um, so we do find that Black and Hispanic kids are disproportionately represented in the foster care system. Um, and that is nationwide and it's state to state as well. I should mention, so the data that I shared just now from the AFCARS study is national data. The foster care system is a, a federal program. However, each state administers it just a tiny bit differently. 
Um, one of the things that is different from state to state that I'm aware of is the the age of emancipation. So the outcomes for kids in foster care exiting foster care is that 51% will reunify with their family or their caretakers. So remembering that, right, when we remove a child from their home to take them into foster care, to place them with another family that they don't know, um, or hopefully place them with relatives that they do know, a majority of those kids are going to go back to their home. They're going to go back from where we remove them. And that's why it's really incumbent upon us as, as social workers or as attorneys or as foster parent re, um, supports, whatever your role is in the foster care system, it's important to remember that, that these kids are going to go back to where, they, where we remove them from. So it's really important that we make sure that the family that, they come, that they've been removed from is wrapped with services and has enough support to be able to take that child back. Now, 51% reunify with caretakers. 23% are adopted, 10% have a guardianship arrangement, meaning that they become, um, they're not adopted, but there's some kind of arrangement. Maybe they're older teenagers and they don't necessarily want to be adopted, but they want to go and live with their foster family permanently or a friend's family. So there's guardianship. That's about 10% of our foster youth exiting. Um, 8% just emancipate from the system. So there are 8% of, of the foster youth, which is about 20,000 young people every year, emancipate from the system. Now, emancipation is an amazing, wonderful, you know, the word itself, right, means like freedom and being away, done with something. But emancipation from the foster care system means that you are leaving this foster care system with no permanent placement. So no one, you know, no specific place to be. We, we aren't going to say you're going back to this home or to this, you're going to be adopted by this person or this person taking guardianship of you. These become unaccompanied minors. And maybe not minors, but they become unaccompanied youth. So 20,000 young people from the foster care system every year emancipate out without any connection to anybody else. And then we have 7% of them who go and live with other relatives. So I also want to, so I mentioned that 51% unify with caretakers, but I also want to point out that the kids who emancipate back with, uh, or that kind of just go out on, on their own, usually also end up back with their own family. But it isn't done through the system saying, okay, your family is well enough now to take care of you. It's that that family was not well enough to take care of them. So they aged out at 18, but then having nowhere else to go, they ended up back where they were removed from. So again, it's incumbent on us to remember that, that the kids are always going to find their way back to biology, right? They're always going to find their way back to where they came from because that's who they are. That's how they identify. That may be the only resource they have left. And there's there's a lot of strong ties there. And I'll talk about that in one of the other episodes about the the real, the love for their biological families, regardless of what was done to them, is very strong. And we have to recognize that whether we like it or not, <laughs> we just have to recognize that. And we have to do a good job or a better job, I should say, of really developing that family and lifting that family up so that they can also take care of the kids when they come back to them. So there are a few outcomes for youth as well that aren't so great. So, well, what we find is that our foster youth move an average of two schools when they come into care. Um, I know my kids each moved several times, and my oldest son, who was in care the longest, moved, I think he had like seven different school moves. 
to be honest. Um, I have a copy of his transcript from when he left his senior year, and he there are still two uh, two schools that aren't even marked on his transcript. Um, but he had a different school pretty much every year, if not two times a year. So you can imagine how challenging that can be for a young person. You've already been removed from your family of origin. Even if there was abuse happening, it's still a, a you know, you're being removed from something you know. And then you go to school hoping that you can stay with your peers, but that's not going to happen either, right? Because you're being moved to a new location. So you have to attend a new school. Now, there are laws that say that kid, foster kids can keep their school of origin meaning they can stay in their home school even if their, their placement moves um, as long as it's a reasonable accommodation to transport them. Um, but I also know that a lot of agencies just don't do that because they don't have the funds to do it, so they move kids instead of keeping kids where they are and finding ways to transport them. Only half of foster youth finish high school, which is so heartbreaking to me. But if you think about how often they move and you're moving kids kind of in the prime of their peer development, you know, and their academic development in elementary school when kids come into care, right? Five, five to eight years old is kind of the average of coming into care. That's what kindergarten through third grade. So you're learning a lot of foundational skills. Um, and then you have to kind of show up in middle school. And if you haven't had those foundational skills, you might be challenged a little bit. We find a majority of foster youth end up in the in the special ed system, and that's partly because of their their moves, but also the trauma that they have experienced. Um, only so only half of our foster youth finish high school. Um, only ten percent apply to college, and of the ten percent who apply to college, only three percent of foster youth graduate from college. That is so heartbreaking. Only three percent of foster youth graduate from college. Again, that is a failure of the adults in the system, right? That only half of our kids finish high school is so pathetic as a, as a mark on us adults that we can't get these kids through high school. Um, there are so many breakdowns, and, and I'll have to talk a little bit different, you know, separately about public education and or education in general and foster youth and homeless youth. Um, but these kids kind of go underground and, and just don't get the services that they need. The um, Foster Focus is a magazine, online magazine for foster youth, and they had some data that shared that within 18 months of emancipation, so within 18 months of leaving the system, that without any you know planned connections, 40 to 50 percent of foster youth become homeless. 40 to 50 percent of foster youth become homeless after emancipation. Uh, that is such a failure. That is a, such a failure of us adults. Again, this is not about these foster youth. They are put in impossible situations. This is purely about us as a system. We are not serving them correctly. We're not serving them right. We're, we're just not doing right by them. 40 to 50% of foster youth become homeless within 18 months, within a year of emancipating from the system. And then we find nationally that 50, 50% of homeless people in the nation have spent time in foster care. Again, what a failure. What a failure of a system. Oh my gosh. Half of the kids that we serve become homeless. And, and we're basically shifting them from system to system, right? We're shifting them from the foster care system to the criminal justice system potentially. And I have the data on that. It's 70% of California inmates have spent time in foster care. 70, 70% 70 of inmates have spent time in foster care. And 80% of inmates in Chicago, 80, 
0.80% of inmates in Chicago have spent time in foster care. We're basically directly funneling foster kids into the prison system. OMG. I mean, yeah. Every time I read that statistic out loud, I kind of stop and shudder. And I know it. I know it very personally, quite frankly. Um, one of my foster kids is in prison and, and is getting out soon. And he's been in for a while. And he he kind of rode the school to prison pipeline. I, I didn't get to catch it in time for him. By the time I got to him, he was kind of already in the pipeline. He was already had already been to juvenile hall and been expelled from a few schools and no support, no understanding of the trauma that he had to deal with as a child, no, you know, no ability to hold him and to hold his situation and to find supports for him. He was just written off, pushed aside, pushed out, um, and directly school to prison pipeline. And so many of our foster kids get stuck in that pipeline. Um, I don't know that it's an accident, though, to be honest. I'll, you know, this is my, <laughs> the radical part of me coming out, but I don't necessarily think in all cases that this is an accident. These systems work on, you know, they run on bodies. <laughs> they have to run on bodies. And if, like, there would be no prison system if we did right in the foster care system, right? If 80% of inmates in Chicago have had time in the foster care system, and if the foster care system did its job correctly and emancipated those kids with supports and resources and housing, there would be no prison system in Cal in Chicago. Like that's, that's, I mean, I know there's a lot in between there. <laughs> I'm not suggesting like, oh, I, I figured it out. But truly, if we did better by our foster youth, these outcomes would not be what they are. And then the last statistics that I want to statistic that I want to share, because the rest of these just make me want to throw things. <laughs> the last one is the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty estimates that about 5,000 unaccompanied youth, so these are the kids that are emancipated out without any plan, 5,000 unaccompanied youth die each year from assault or illness or suicide. And that, again, is a huge failure of our system. 5,000 nationally doesn't seem like a lot, but even one, even one is one too many. And this is a system that acts to protect kids from the abuse and neglect that's happening in their home. We pull them into this network of foster homes and group homes and residential facilities. We are supposed to pull them into a plan, right? We're concurrently planning for them to go both go back home and to be adopted or to have a permanent placement once they're, once they're out of the foster care system. And yet still 20,000 kids every year are emancipated out. Now, for most states, at the age of 18, there's a hearing maybe for that kid on their birthday, and they're literally given, in some cases still, unfortunately, a trash bag with their stuff in it, and kind of given the bag, their case is closed, and they're told, you know, good luck. And there's no more support for them. They're cut off completely from financial aid, from, you know, the, the, the housing, from food support, any of that stuff. Now, I don't know how many of you listening to this have children of your own that are over 18, but I imagine that when they turned 18, you probably wanted to cut them off right at 18, but chances are you probably are still supporting your kids into their early 20s, right? I know I had to move you know, back home, and again, for me, if you heard in the last episode, back home was living with my aunt instead of moving back home because I felt like that was you know, somehow different and 
made me less of a failure. <laughs> um, and But even now in this economy, right, your kids are moving back home. Like 20-somethings are moving back home because they can't afford to live on their own. And these are kids that have gone to college and graduated. So imagine a foster child, someone who's been harmed in this process and who has been traumatized by their removal and who has had to move from school to school to school and may or may not have graduated high school, right? Only 50% graduate. And then at 18, we're just going to say, okay, you're done. We're, we're good here. And that's ridiculous. Um, here in California, and I think in a few other states, our kids can stay in care until they're 21. There's a, a law called AB 12, Assembly Bill 12, that allows foster youth to stay in care until they're 21 if they're working or in school part-time. Um, and th so they can be at a community college taking classes or they can be working part-time. And they are able to, what happens is that once they turn 18, the state then pays them directly from age 18 to 21. They get a, a monthly stipend once a month in order to help support themselves. Um, when they're in foster care, the foster parents get that stipend. Um, and the stipends for foster parents um, range from, I think I've heard, you know, from $500 to about $1,200 a month for the kids. Um, the payment depends sometimes on where you are, like what state you're in, right? Because it's kind of commiserate with cost of living, but also if your student or if your child has any special needs. So if you take in a student or a young person, sorry, I keep saying student because I'm working in schools and a lot of the foster youth I work with are students, so I refer to them that way. Um, but if you take in a foster youth who has diabetes or sickle cell or um, has a learning disability or a physical disability, you would get paid more per month, right? And that just makes sense because you're putting out more for their needs. Um, and then you get a little less if they don't. But what I find is that the stipends for foster parents are not enough for the foster parents that are amazing and are doing everything the children need. And it's too much money for the people who are just doing it for the money. And I know you've heard this, like people just going into foster care for the money. And yes, that happens. It's not, a, you're never going to get rich being a foster parent, <laughs> but it is a way for some people to make money without having to work and to have this badge of honor of like being a superhero, you know, um, Sometimes when people hear that I'm a foster parent, I get the like, oh, you're so amazing. That's so wonderful. Um, and I appreciate it, but it also makes me a little bit meh. You know, it, it, I really wish everybody would step up to think about being a foster parent. The fact that we have half a million children in the foster care system and 110,000 that need to be adopted um, – we need more foster parents. We don't, this isn't a special snowflake kind of situation. This isn't a, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. You're, you know, you're Mother Teresa. You're, what kind of animal are you? Like, I'm not a unicorn. This is not magic. You know, I just decided I wanted to parent in this way. I wanted to, to find a way to parent the kids whose parents have checked out. <laughs> um, so it was a decision that my husband and I made together. And I'm going to wait until we get into the the next part of this to really share my process, but or my journey, I should say, not process. But um but don't if you're thinking about being a foster parent, if it's even on your mind at all, please consider doing it and please encourage other people to do it. Um it's the best thing I've ever done. It was such a good investment. My husband and I were just talking about this last night. Every tear, every cry, every frustration, every dollar we've spent, <laughs> all of this has been the best investment. 
um, being there for our kids, showing up for them, um, and making sure that they succeed and that they smash these fucking stereotypes or these data, you know, these data stats. Because when you see that only 50% of kids graduate high school, um, all my kids graduated. I, my oldest son is still working on his GED, but my other two graduated. And that's a huge success. Two of my kids are in college and they will graduate. They will be that 3% that graduate. Um, and that's what I tell them all the time. I said that these decks are stacked against you, but not in this house. In this house, we clear the decks and we're going to make sure that you succeed and you smash all those stereotypes and all those statistics because not in my house. <laughs> and that's just the way you have to look at it as a social worker, as an attorney, what, as a judge, whatever your role is in this foster care system, we have to be willing to put ourselves out there and show up for these kids and make sure that they hear from us that we are not playing with these stats. We are not going to let them fail. We are not going to let this system fail them. So that's all I wanted to share for now with the data and the, the, the general statistics of foster care. I know that was a lot to digest and a lot to take in. So I hope that you'll re-listen to this podcast just to get a sense of the depth and the breadth of this, again, this moving multi-part beast we call the foster care system. I know I've missed a few points, but I'm going to try to pull them back into the second um, session of this episode. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Thank you for, for being curious about this topic. I know for some people, foster care is interesting. For some, it's not. Um, but you're here and you're listening and you showed up. And that tells me quite a bit. So thank you so much for listening. I hope these stats haven't depressed you too much. <laughs> it is very easy to hear this kind of data and get very heavy with it. But I want you to know that these are, again, just numbers. And it's just a way to explain and tell the story of a system that we know isn't working. And that's why we're here. That's why you've come to this episode. That's why you've come to the Steward Project podcast. And hopefully that's the work that you're excited to do moving forward. So I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I want to thank you for being interested in foster care. And if you are a foster parent, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you are a foster youth, please know that all of this data and these statistics, these are not you. You can smash these. You can live a, a fulfilling life. You can reclaim back your power that the system has taken from you. Um, and I hope you'll stick around to hopefully hear one of my own kids sharing a little bit more about their journey in the system. And please let me know if there are any data points that you're more interested in hearing about. I, I didn't want to kind of overwhelm, so there's probably some data and some information that I left out. Um, but we will circle back around and, and we have many more episodes to share um, and many more discussions to share together. So thank you so much again for coming and for showing up and, and for taking time to listen to this Steward Project podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Steward Project podcast and sharing this space with me. Remembering that how we show up in the world matters, we're all in this together, and we belong to each other. Until next time.